it's our habit as a culture to use New Year's as sort of a reboot, right? A do-over, a fresh start. And in Christianity, the concept of fresh start, clean slate, is the story of the gospel. So you'd think, as Christians, this idea of coming back to a fresh start ought to be common. It ought to be something that is uh, the norm for us. But I want to challenge that concept today, that any follower of Jesus Christ who has made a faith commitment, been what Jesus called born again, we've been transferred into the life of Christ by a profession of faith in Jesus, a confession of our need for a Savior, a need for forgiveness, by the Spirit birthing us into the body. I want to suggest that for those of us that have experienced that reboot, it's the only one you'll ever need. And the coming back over and over again to square one is something that we have to get over. We really have to get past The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 6, and let's say this together. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance and of faith in God. To be a Christian and to constantly be going back to start over, thinking, oh, I blew it again, I'm back to square one is staying in the basics, and and we're supposed to be moving beyond those things. It's not to say that we ever leave the idea of forgiveness, but to understand what it means to become the child of God is to understand that we are past forever condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. I have this little uh, flick football game. Any of you have played any of the flick sports on your, on your iPhones? That's the only reason I own it, you know, it's for the games. You, you understand that, right? It's a business deduction, but it's the games that I like. You get to play Tom Brady if you want, and every time you complete a good pass, you get points. But if you run a string of passes, each time your points increase exponentially. But then the coverage gets harder, and then when you throw an interception or you throw a miss because the wind is too strong, guess what happens? You go all the way back, so your next pass is the lowest possible points, and then you build up again. And I thought to myself, that's how a lot of us think of our spiritual journey. We feel like I have to build up good progress, and if I fail, which we inevitably will fail, we all fail morally, we are not, as Christians, perfect people. It's why we needed a a Savior. It's why we needed the cross. It's why we need grace. We are going to fail, but we see the fail as sort of like, oh, I was going so well. And we feel like we're right back at the beginning. That's not true. And it's not because of us. It's because of Christ. I've become a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And here's how he goes on to describe it. God made him who knew no sin, verse 21, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you blow it this last year? We all blew it. But even with that, I can stand here on no merit of my own, but completely on the merit of Christ and tell you I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And I am not defeated. And God's love, God's grace for me is not destroyed because of my moral inadequacies. Now, it's not to suggest that I'm not to grow. I am to grow. 
But I need to stop seeing my failures as defeat and recognize that in spite of those failures, God's at work in me. Vit and I have been going through our old pictures before we had digital cameras. Yes, we're that old. (laughs) Yeah, VHS tapes and printed film. We're looking at pictures of our kids when they were learning to walk. Ella was the one that was the most advanced. She learned to walk at ninth month. She was something. Tommy, I think it was last week. <laughs> Somewhere along there, I think. You know, what, what if as a kid we're learning to walk, we're just taking those first steps, and, and then we fall, and our parents go, well, that's it, forget it. Gave it a shot. I guess, I guess this one's not going to be a walker. <laughs> not going to happen. That's not what our Heavenly Father does. He says, all right, that's one step. This time, let's go for two. That's what our Heavenly Father has in mind for us. So New Year's for us should never be thought of as a reboot. I blew last year so bad, I'm just going to start over. You don't understand grace. You don't understand the cross. If you think you have to constantly go back to that first starting point that all of us began in our journey with Christ. Mahara read a beautiful passage of greeting from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the city of Philippi. And I'd like to offer it to us today as a hopeful vision for the new year. Philippians chapter 1. Would you turn there again with me? Listen again to what the Apostle Paul says. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now and being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There are two things in this verse that challenge us to have a joyful outlook. Two things that Paul says are the reason why when I think of you, one of his congregations, people that he loved so much, he thought about them with joy. First, it's the security of the gospel. He says, I remember you with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I don't exactly know what Paul's referring to when he says the first day, but I presume that there are believers here that came to faith when Paul was ministering there. And Paul is saying, we remember that day when our journey began in the gospel. We have that in common. And remember what that is like. Jesus called his disciples to simply follow him and in that process be transformed. It's a journey. That's why we call our church the Journey Community Church because we want to be a place where people are taking that journey with Christ. For some of you, that may mean having that first encounter with Christ finally where you get to the point where all that we've said about the gospel, our need for redemption, finally has reached a critical point in your life where you know you need to step into that. And, and you, like everyone else, need to have that, that spiritual rebirth, reboot and start that journey with us. We'd love to see you do that this year. We'd love to see you do it today. If you just would say, yeah, I I confess and I believe and I, I receive Christ. This becomes day one for you. But it's day one, like all of us, in an ongoing journey. 
We don't have to come back and start over. The score doesn't start all over again when we blow it. It's a journey of progressive transformation. That's the second thing. We can have a joyful outlook because, first of all, we are secure in the gospel. But second, we have God's promise to work in us. Now, notice here that Paul is remembering everyone here with joy, but for nothing that they themselves seem to have accomplished. He's not saying, I remember all the great things we did together or all the things I hear about you. He remembers them with joy because like him, they are recipients of what God has accomplished and is and will continue to accomplish in them. That is the joyful outlook. God takes ownership of the whole. It is God who saves us. It is God who continues to work in us. The Bible refers to salvation as something that is a past tense. We were saved. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And that's that moment when we are regenerated, justified. But the Bible also speaks about a current aspect of salvation. Paul uses the phrase, those of us who are being saved. See, the gospel first births us into Christ, but then the gospel also is the covering over us of God's righteousness that allows us to grow, allows us to try out our legs. And if we fall after one step, it's the grace, it's the gospel of God that lets us without condemnation stand up and try for two. The Bible calls that part of salvation sanctification. In the past, I was justified. I was saved from the penalty of sin. Now, because of God's faithful work in me, I am being sanctified, and that means I'm being saved from the power of sin. And there's yet a future aspect of salvation. Paul says, I believe that the time of our salvation is near when Christ returns to bring us home. That's glorification, and when that happens, I will be saved from the presence of sin. You see, it's all about the cross. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the relentless, passionate pursuit of God to bring us to himself and then to continue that work of transforming us into being like him. I love that. It's a joyful thing. Our outlook as Christians is never to be riddled in guilt. Christians should never say, I feel guilty, ever. Guilt is about condemnation. How should a Christian feel about their moral failures? Paul even asks this question in Romans. When Paul expresses that gospel about no condemnation, then he asks the question that everybody's thinking, so then I can continue in sin? Paul says, by no means. May it never be. No, what I need to experience when I fail is what the Bible calls conviction. That's not guilt. Guilt is from Satan. Its goal is to condemn us, and the end the result of it is death. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. It's motivated out of love. Its goal for us is restoration and purification. See, the difference simply is me feeling always loved by God, always able to turn to Him and allow even my failures to become an opportunity for God to continue his relentless work 
in us. Let me just quickly take you to a parallel passage that is one of those more mysterious passages, but when you see it in the context of this ongoing work of the gospel of sanctification, it's a beautiful thing. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What he's dealing with as he writes to Corinth is this perpetual issue of the Judaizers who were a sect within Judaism willing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but did not understand grace, did not understand that Jesus was creating a new community that he called his church. They felt that he was the Messiah of the Jews, and therefore, if anybody wanted to worship the Messiah, they had to become Jewish, which meant they had to come under the old covenant, the old laws. Paul wrote to come against it that the old covenant under Moses, the law, was designed not so much to make people righteous, because all that the law showed us is that we can't keep up. The law helps us become aware of our moral inadequacy. And so what the law creates is our awareness of moral death. And that was a work of God. God gave the law, and therefore it had its place in God's plan. The new covenant is about grace, The Old Covenant is about death and judgment, and and Moses is the primary character. The New Covenant is about grace and Jesus Christ, and that is about life. And so Paul is comparing these two. As we come to this, you're going to hear Paul refer to two things, the ministry that brought death, and he's referring to the Old Covenant. And then he was referring to the ministry of the Spirit and he's referring to the new covenant. Note that he calls both of them ministries, and what that means is that they were both an act of God, and because of that, there was glory in both. But watch the critical difference between the glory that was temporary in the old and the glory that is forever and ever-increasing in the new. So with that lengthy contextual lesson, let's read the passage. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, that's the old covenant, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. So here's the first picture. Even the law that brought death, even though it was temporary, it had such glory to it that Moses, when he received it from God, actually radiated, but it was temporary, as was the law itself. But Moses didn't understand that. So when the glory began to fade, Moses actually covered his face because he didn't want people to see that the glory was fading. Now, Paul looks back at that and says, of course it was fading. It was temporary. It was always temporary. But now let's look at the new ministry. Verse 8, if that was the case with Moses, in verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns man is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings rightness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So what he's saying is what we have in Christ is the glory, is the life that lasts forever. It never fades. 
and that is our glory. Now, for sake of time, let's go down to the end of the passage, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, including all of us, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here's the difference. In the old way, that glory was temporary, but now this glory, like the work of salvation, like the cross of Christ, once and for all, lasts and endures forever. And you and I carry that glory We carry the glory of the very presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And here's what's even better. We don't have to be ashamed of it. We can, with unveiled faces, gloriously stand before the world and reflect this glory of God. More than that, as we grow, as we progress in our journey, this glory increases. It is an ever-increasing glory. I think the King James puts it, moving from glory to glory. Your and my life in Christ is a crescendo of God's ever-increasing glory being reflected through us to the world around us. I love that thought. I'm intimidated by that thought. How can any of us possibly measure up to that task? Ah, but there's the rub. That's the old thinking. It's not the new thinking. In the new thinking, I just need to let God do his work in me. I need to cooperate Surrender to it, let God do the work, and let that work that God does in me through my failures, through my joys, and through my successes, let all of that be a way that God is glorified. The reason why so many non-Christians think less of the church is because Christians try to pretend that they don't fail rather than just being real people, letting the real Holy Spirit, the real grace of God, show through our reality and our honesty about who we are. And so what they see is God at work in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. I love that. I'm excited at the thought of it, even as I'm intimidated by it. But we need to get past the intimidation and just recognize that God owns that. You don't have to own it. Just stop hiding. Just live it out in front of the world. Let's go back to our primary passage and let's look at how this uh, works its way out as Paul describes this God who is faithful to continue and bring to completion his work in us, this ever-increasing glory. Um, Let's just go down to verse uh, 9. First five words are, and this is my prayer. Now, let's look at the passage. How does it begin? Paul says, every time I pray for you, I always pray with, and what's the word? Joy. Now he's saying, and this is that prayer. So one way to help you understand this passage is to go to verse 4 and circle those three words, pray with joy, and then go down to verse 9 and circle those first five words, and this is my prayer, and then draw a line to them. That's the basis for this prayer. So I want you to read it with Paul saying, I'm praying this with joy because I always pray for you with joy. And by the way, this is what I pray. Now let's read it. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, 
so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I just want to suggest that this, in some way, is a glimpse of this path to glory, this path to growth that all of us are on. Whether it's January 1st or December 30th, (laughs) we are always on this path of ever-increasing glory. And I'm going to share four aspects to that journey, four ways that you can count on God being at work in your life. And you can commit yourself to cooperate with God throughout this next year as he's at work. The first thing is simply this, more love. How does he say it? This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Paul's hope, his earnest prayer, an expectation that this unconditional love will ever increase in our lives, both in our ability to receive it from people as well as our ability to give it, because many of us are as compromised in our ability to receive love as we are in giving it. Part of this growth is to understand that nothing you'll ever do will make God love you less. Nothing you'll ever do will make him love you more. He loves you with an infinite love. And as you grow, you'll never grow into that love enough. (laughs) There's always more. It will always be on the increase. How you doing with that? What, What is it that you need to allow God to speak to you so that you can accept his love for you and then in turn release that love to others. The second thing he talks about is more spiritual knowledge. Knowledge uh, is epignosis. It's experiential knowledge. It's not just head knowledge. It's that my life has experienced what my head knows. It's a relational knowledge. So it's knowledge that comes from both a deepening understanding of the Word of God. God's Word is one true path, the primary path to deepening our knowledge. But so is our experiential relationship with the body of Christ and with the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. I think there was a period in my life when I was least effective in serving God. And um, I'm not saying that this is true of everyone, Uh, But for me, I think it was somewhere between being 26 years old and being like 30, 31 years old. Uh, We were traveling. I was speaking at youth conventions and recording and doing concerts all over the United States and Canada. We had a a wonderful life as as a family. I was successful from a human observation of ministry. But I think I was least productive for the kingdom. And that's because I was stagnant in my knowledge of God. I was raised to believe certain things. I went to Bible college. I had to pass all the tests about what we believe. I then went through my ordination and I created this description of all of my beliefs. And based on that and my defense of it, a number of pastors allowed me to be ordained. And then I plateaued. I got busy with the stuff of ministry and stopped deepening my knowledge of God and his word. And it took becoming a father for God to shake that in me. That's a whole other story. I look back at that and realize that I I was arrogant about what I knew. 
And, and God had to shatter that notion. And the joy for me right now in ministry is to be preaching to a congregation that allows me the pleasure of spending many hours a week preparing. And every time I open God's word, even familiar passages have something new. You never stop growing. Every time God's word is open, it's alive and active. There's more to know. We grow in knowledge. Third thing he talks about is not just knowledge, but wisdom. The, the two words he uses are insight and discernment. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. Insight and discernment. There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge goes, this is what it is. Wisdom says, this is how it ought to change me and change others. And it results in a shaping experience in my life. I, I, I'm gonna speak again to the older believers who are here today. Our, our younger men and women in this church who have, are passionate about Christ. Such a privilege to have them here. Need to look at every one of you and know the thing you have after all these years that they can hope for and look forward to is great wisdom. You don't just know about doctrine. It's shaped you. You have insight into life. See? Wisdom is something all of us can look forward to to the very end. And then the fourth thing is what he refers to as righteousness. That, that, of course, can be an intimidating idea because it seems to set standards again. But righteousness is rightness. And remember what Paul said, I've become the righteousness of God in Christ, not through me. Righteousness is rightness. It's Christ-likeness. And even though I'm listing it as the fourth thing, it's different than the other three. Righteousness is not something I can do. I don't do righteous. Righteous is a fruit, he says, the result of the work of God in me. See, some of us think we're going to make the change. And that's why some of you every year make the same moral mistakes over and over again. Because you say, okay, next time this happens, I'll do this differently. No, you won't. You won't do it differently. You don't do different. You become different. What you do is just the fruit of who you are. And it's God's working in us to shape us that produces this glorious fruit of Christ-likeness. And that's the glory that's ever-increasing. So what's the path to that? You see, it's this path of more love, more knowledge, more insight that's the work of the Holy Spirit as Christ pursues his work in our life. It's those things, it's those internal transformations that result in this fruit of an observable Christ-likeness in our lives. See, don't do better. Just stop trying. Become better. Surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life because God's relentless in it. Why fight it? Cooperate with it. It'll be glorious. I want to just, as we wrap up here, ask you two questions to think about in, in, in light of all this. The first question is, how do you look at last year? 
How have you been looking at last year? Maybe up until this conversation today, you would have said, well, I've been measuring last year based on a few things I did better, a few things I did worse. I blew it here, I blew it there, got a little better there. What if instead, as a child of God, recognizing that Christ was at work always in you, what if you just looked at last year and said, by God's grace, I'm not the person I used to be. I'm growing from glory to glory. That's what God sees, and that's what I'm going to learn to see. I'm going to cooperate with that transforming work. Question number two, what do you hope for this next year? Perhaps before our conversation today, you said, well, I hope to lose a few pounds. I hope to do better on this. I'm going to do better on that. I'm going to spend more time on that. What if getting in tune to what God's doing in your life, what if you looked at this next year and said, by God's promise, I am not the person I'm going to be. That's what the cross makes possible. It's not just forgiveness of our past. It's promise of a future that God is at work. See, it's hopeful. It's joy. We take that aspect, we will be able to look at each other and look at God and, and receive his word the same way Paul thinks about the church of Philippi and clearly thinks about his own life. Full of joy. Full of joy. 